you haven't already, I would encourage you to take your Bible and turn it to the Gospel of John and chapter 2. Here at Redeemer, we're working our way through John's Gospel. And last week, um, we finished chapter 1. And, and the reason we're working our way through John's Gospel, as you see in the title slide, is because we believe that seeing Jesus for who he is and seeing Jesus for what he has done that only he can do is where people are saved and changed and transformed and delivered. So I'm praying that you would see Jesus in John's gospel in a way that maybe you never have. Perhaps you would believe for the first time. Perhaps you would be reinvigorated by who Christ is. Perhaps you would be awakened in a way that you need to be awakened. But we are praying that you would see Jesus. And in chapter 2, our passage for today, um, we are going to begin to see the power and the authority of Jesus on display. I titled this sermon, New Wine and New Temples. I should have titled it, Better Wine and Better Temples. But then that might have been misconstrued in any way. So here we are, New Wine, New Temples. And what we're going to see in two powerful works of Jesus, we're going to see that in Jesus, there is a unique power. And in Jesus, there is a unique authority. We're going to see today that in Jesus there is a unique power and there is a unique authority whereby he is going to build his kingdom. So there's a unique power and a unique authority in Jesus through which he will build his kingdom. So that's the point I want you to see in this passage this morning. So the first point um, for my note-taking friends is a unique power, a unique power. And we see this in the story uh, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, and working all the way through chapter 2 and verse 11. We're told in the story, you, you probably know it well, you probably learned it in Sunday school as a small child if, if that's how you were raised, but we're told in the story that, that Jesus and his, his family, his mother, his brothers, were at a wedding in the town of Cana. Now, wedding feast at that time could last at least a day and up to a week. And the groom was responsible for entertaining everyone, feeding everyone, and um, giving beverage to everyone, keeping everyone um, happy because a wedding is a huge festival. And we're told that in the middle of this wedding feast, they run out of wine, which brings great shame and great dishonor upon the host of the feast. This can't happen. And so what we see in here is what is the first recorded miracle in the ministry of Jesus. And it is so secret. Really, the only people who in the moment know what happens in this miracle is Jesus' mother Mary and his disciples. Because we're told that at the end of the miracle, the followers of Jesus believed. So we're told they were following after him, but when they witnessed the miracle, something happened that caused them to believe. Now, the, the groom, the bridegroom, 
he knows that something happened because he knows that he was out and he got bailed out and he came out looking like a great host. But what happened in this story is they ran out of wine. Mary, Jesus' mother, comes to him and says, help them. Jesus says, no, it's not my time, meaning it's not the time for me to publicly manifest my glory. But then Jesus goes into the back. Mary says, look, do whatever he tells you, whatever he tells you. And so he sees these six jars that were used for ritual cleansing. And he tells them to go fill up the jars with water. We're told they each hold 20 to 30 gallons. You're talking about 120 to 150 gallons of water. And then Jesus tells them to dip some of it out and take it to the person in charge of the feast. Now put yourself in that situation. I'm going to take him some water. This is not going to go well. They scoop it out. Jesus takes it to them. And Jesus has turned 120 to 150 gallons of water into wine. Not just any wine, but good wine. Not just good wine, but better wine. So good that everyone was saying, hey, why not serve this one first? And then we're told that Jesus quietly disappears. But I think the important verse here is verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So, so look, there are so many preachers that want to wax poetic about the wine in the story. Don't let that tree distract us from the forest. There are so many preachers that want to wax poetic about the purifying jars and, and the, the significance of the purifying jars that got filled with wine. But let's not miss the forest for that one tree. The point is, Jesus quietly worked a miracle. And the miracle accomplished two things. It allowed those who had already left everything to follow him to see his glory, and to believe in him. It allowed those who had already left everything to follow him to see his glory and to believe in him. That's what verse 11 tells us. And so to see his glory is a theme of the gospel of John. And the glory of Jesus is another way of saying the fame of Jesus. It's another way of saying the things that make Jesus unique and worthy of worship and worthy of celebration. And he showed it to them in this quiet miracle of turning water into wine and saving the marriage feast and saving the reputation of the groom. But not only did they see his glory, but seeing his glory caused them to believe. And the word believe here doesn't just mean to mentally accept facts about Jesus is true. That doesn't mean, ah, I believe that he can turn water into wine. It is factually true. To believe here, the word means to entrust oneself. To say, 
I am completely entrusting myself to Jesus because I have seen his glory and I have seen his power. What we have in this story about the water turned to wine is a display of the power of Jesus, which makes clear the glory of Jesus, which makes clear that Jesus is worthy of being followed because Jesus is who he says he is. So if you go back to last week, who is Jesus? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who is Jesus? The Messiah. Who is Jesus? The Son of God. Who is Jesus? The Christ. How do we know we saw his glory, his life, his works, his ministry testifies to the fact that he is who he says he is. We can entrust ourselves to Jesus because Jesus has the power to keep his word. We can entrust ourselves to Jesus because Jesus has the power to keep his promises. We can entrust ourselves to Jesus because Jesus has the power to take sinful people like us and make us loved children of God. And what we see in this miracle, and there are six more of them coming in the Gospel of John, is Jesus to different audiences at the appropriate time displaying his power so that people will see his glory, believe in him, and follow him. This one was particularly for his disciples. And it's told to us here today. So what we see as we enter in in chapter 2, to the life and the ministry and the work of Jesus is there is a unique power on display in Jesus Christ. In this instance, his power is displayed by changing water into wine. In chapter 4, it will be displayed by healing an official son. In chapter 5, it will be displayed by healing an invalid. In chapter 6, it will be displayed by feeding the multitude. In chapter 6, it will be displayed by walking on water. In chapter 9, it will be displayed by healing the man born blind. In chapter 11, it will be healed by raising Lazarus. And on Easter morning, it will be healed by displaying his power over death when he is resurrected. But the life of Jesus is about a unique power on display that shows that he is able to keep his word. He's able to keep his promises and he is who he says he is. So read the story. Read the testimony. Read the facts and see Jesus displaying the power of the glory of God in a way that is very unique. Second, in this story, or in this chapter, we see a second story where Jesus displays a unique authority. And so, the second point for my note-taking friends is a unique authority. And this is in chapter um, 2, verses 13, really through the end of the chapter, but, but for now, let's look at verses 13 through 17. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. That's the center of, that's the physical center of the Jewish life. At Passover, 
which is the center of the annual calendar when every good and faithful Jew will do anything possible to be in Jerusalem. And then Jesus goes to the temple, which is the center of religious expression in Jerusalem. So, so you, I want you to see the setting. The center place, the center building buildings in the middle of the central city when the central city is filled with all the people there to remember God's faithfulness in the Passover events in the book of Exodus, there to remember that God is their Savior, God is their Deliverer, He is their one Lord, and Jesus is going to walk into the temple and He is going to challenge the authority of the religious leaders over Jerusalem at this time. What does he do? He goes in, and the temple had different precincts, right? Like there was the Holy of Holies where no one could enter except once a year, one person with a rope tied around his waist. And then there was the next round and the next realm. And then the furthest realm out was the the area where the Gentiles could go. But even the Gentiles could go and worship God. And so what was happening in this area was what had been set up were oh, you need to give an offering on Passover, but you forgot to bring one with you, so we can sell that to you here at the temple. And um, maybe you have the wrong currency, so we have some money changers here to, to help with that. And so, so what's happened is, is a, a good capitalistic marketplace has been set up in the outer realm of the temple. And Jesus comes in, and what does he do? He takes out a whip or he makes a whip, and he starts slinging it around, running people out, flipping over tables, spilling the money everywhere. We can only imagine that birds and animals are running amok everywhere, and Jesus cleans out this part of the temple, and he verbally declares, get these things away, Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, any of our pictures of Jesus that have meek, mild, soothsaying Jesus giving good quotes that that make us rub our beards and ponder the, the complexity of the good statements while we smoke pipes and theologize, we've missed a big part of Jesus. Jesus was not afraid to stand up to those who misrepresented God. And he goes into the temple and declares to the religious leaders that they are wrong in their practice and that he knows better because the God of the temple is his father. And so what Jesus is saying is I have the authority to question the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders of the day because I come from the Father and the Father and I are one and I'm telling you that you are wrong. So Jesus is displaying in this story that he has authority to tell the Jewish people what God desires from them. Jesus is proclaiming that he has the authority 
to tell the Jewish leaders of the day that he can tell them that they're right and wrong and he knows what his father desires. So what Jesus is displaying in this story, and and maybe if you're like me, you kind of scratch your head and you go, how do we go from the, the water to wine and right into the cleansing of the temple? Like, does that seem like an odd transition? It has for me all week. I've just kind of been going, like, like, how does this fit together? I think it fits together because it is John showing us what Jesus is here to proclaim and what he's here to challenge. And he's here to proclaim, I have unique power. And he's here to proclaim, I have unique authority. I am able to tell you who the Father is, what the Father has said, and what the Father desires from his people. And this is unacceptable. Now again, we could get lost in the, the, the money changing at church, and we could get lost in, you know, can you ever sell anything at church, or Jesus going to come and whip you out of here, and we could get lost in lots of trees that would cause us to miss the main point, which is Jesus is declaring his authority to speak for the Father and to guide the worship of God's So what we have in Jesus is a Messiah with a unique power and a Messiah with a unique authority. Now, lest you think I'm reading too much into this, let's look at verses 18 and following. How did the Jews respond to Jesus' cleansing of the temple? Verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What sign do you show us for doing these things? I mean, you've made some big claims, Jesus. You've you've cleansed the temple. You've told us that that practice is wrong. You've told us that we're misappropriating worship in the Father's house. You've called God your Father. We don't talk that way, Jesus. Don't you know we don't use those words here? By what authority do you do these things? Things. So what are the Jewish leaders asking? Hey, you better have some validation for what you're up to, buddy. And that leads to our, our third point. Our third point is an unexpected kingdom. And what this passage tells us is that Jesus is not going to build his kingdom, his church, and his followers in the way that was expected. He's not going to build his kingdom, his church, and his followers in the way that was expected. So, look at Jesus' answer. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. That's a pretty bold claim. Except, and that's what the Jews say, like, look, man, it's taken 46 years to build this thing. You're going to do it in three days? But what they didn't realize was Jesus was not talking about the physical temple where they stood. This is what verses 21 and 22 tell us. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And so, When Jesus was raised on the third day, 
His disciples were told, remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. But here's what Jesus is saying. In my kingdom, things will be different. You come to a physical temple and offer repeated sacrifices to placate your sin for a period of time. But I am coming to be a new temple. I'm the temple, meaning I'm the place where you meet with God. I'm the place where God's blessings come down. I'm the place where salvation is delivered. I'm the new temple. And in me, there's a sacrifice that's offered once and for all time. And in me, your sins are forgiven forever. So Jesus is saying, I'm building something different. And what I am building is a faith rooted in the salvation that I provide for my people. This kingdom is different and it's unexpected because it's not physical primarily, but spiritual. It's different because it's not rooted in the establishment of the nation of Israel, but it's rooted in the one who was to come from Abraham who would keep all the promises of God and build a new people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. So this kingdom is different that Jesus is bringing. And therefore, we have in this passage the the elements that, that kind of boggle our minds where Jesus is saying, slow down. This is not the right time. This is not the right place. This is not the right way. For example, verse 4 of chapter 2, Jesus looks at his mother and he says, my hour has not yet come. That's going to become a theme in the book of John. What's Jesus saying? It's not yet the time for the world to, in a very public way, know the totality of who I am and what I claim to be and what I've come to done. It's not the time. The time is when I am going to die. Verses 23, 24, and 25, we're told that when all this goes on at the Passover, people are jumping on board. They're on the Jesus bandwagon. We believe in his name. We've seen the signs. He is the Messiah. We're with him. Let's do this thing. Let's bring the kingdom now. Let's tear it down. Let's bring the rain. But we're told that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew what was in man. If you've ever wondered what that means, here's what it means. Jesus knew that the heart of man is deceptively wicked. He knew that the heart of man is after immediate gain. He knew that the heart of man is after temporal gain. He knew that the heart of man wanted the kingdom of God to come through Jesus right now for all the wrong reasons. And so Jesus knew this and did not entrust the leadership of his kingdom into those who were ready to raise him up at the wrong time. 
Because Jesus knew this, that the temple must be destroyed so that it could be raised up on the third day. Jesus knew that everything God sent him to do hinged on that event where he would die. He would be destroyed and he would be raised up on the third day. So yes, Jesus displayed his power at a wedding in Cana when he turned water into wine. But Jesus truly displayed his power some three years later when he died on a cross and the third day rose from the dead declaring death is defeated, sin is defeated, all things are made new. Yes, Jesus hinted at his authority, his unique authority when he walked into the temple in the middle of the Passover and cleansed it and said, you were wrong and I know what the Father desires and you are making his house a train wreck. But Jesus would display his greater authority when on the third day he rose from the dead And he then looked at his disciples and said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He said, my spirit will come upon you. And he said, I will be with you to the end of the age. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And these stories about his power and his authority are intended to undergird our faith so we can see his glory, see his power, see his authority, and believe and trust and follow and obey. So what do we do with this today? First, we have to ask ourselves the question, what do I say about Jesus? We have to ask ourselves that question. Do I believe that he is the unique son of God who brings the salvation of God uniquely to the people of God? Have I entrusted myself to him? If not, friends, we would love, love, love to talk with you today about trusting Jesus is the most important question you will ever, ever wrestle with. But we live in the South. We live in the bastion of cultural Christianity. We live in the buckle of the Bible belt where we all at some point have gone to church, been baptized at some point or another, made some profession of a need for Jesus, and many of us have never truly known him. We've never been changed. We've just gone through the motions of Christianity. And the question for us is who do you say Jesus is? How do you respond to him? Are you trusting him? Are you believing that that your today and your tomorrow and your forever rest in his hands? Are you believing that if he heals and he restores and he saves, that you'll forever be changed? Are you believing that there's hope for the worst of us because of who he is? Are you believing that he truly guides us to the Father? Are you believing that when he says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me, that that's not an a hindrance and inhibition upon our libertarian freedom, but it's a good thing to follow after Jesus because he leads his people to joyfully glorify God. Do you believe that? I'm glad you said amen. Now deep in your soul is your life being changed by Jesus. 
Because that's what he came to do. Because he has a unique power. He has a unique authority. He shows us the Father. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And there is no other way to the Father except through him. And we who wear the Christian t-shirts and have the ichthuses on our cars ought to live like that is true. And so often we don't. And I'm not pointing fingers at you. I'm talking about at 213 Vintage Circle where the Mosley family resides. We often go through our days as if Jesus is just a name on the doorstep. But Jesus is our Lord and he is with us. And if we believe that, we would fall on our faces in prayer. We would cry out to him. We would depend upon him. We would open the Bible. We'd let his word saturate us. We would be going to our neighbors saying, I got to tell you about the Savior that I've seen. We would be shouting to the world, come and see this Jesus. Come and see him. Come and watch him make all things new in you. And the honest truth is we don't. We don't, and I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I just want you to say, Jesus is able. He is able to change my cold heart into a warmer. He is able to change my stale affections into alive affections. He is able to open my mind to see truth that I've never seen. He is able to make me love in a way that I've never loved. He is able to make everything new today, today. I want you to believe that so that you leave here and you go out differently. Now, team, you can come on up. If you feel a little bit um, like you need help, good. That's where the Bible brings us. The help comes from the Lord. We are never, ever, ever left to obey God on our own. The Spirit dwells within us, and He is always with us to help us. And Jesus gave to His church a feast that we call the Lord's Supper. And the purpose of this feast is for us to again and again and again root ourselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, I'm broken, but Jesus saves. To say, I need help, but the God of all comfort helps us. Jesus indeed is our Savior. So here at Redeemer, we invite anyone who is a follower of Jesus, anyone who has placed your faith in Christ for salvation, we invite you to take the bread and take the cup with us.